Good morning, Emmanuel. It's so good to be here with you all. Um, as Hunter noted, I'm not Jas Galley, the pastor of this fine church. He is out, and I'm honored and uh, very thankful to be able to fill in for him. Um, but as Hunter did mention, I serve as the office administrator of this wonderful church. And unfortunately for you guys, that means instead of getting the pastor, you're getting the guy who answers the phone on a regular day. So... We're going to see how this goes. Um, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, if you don't, there's one in front of you, I invite you to take it and turn to Mark chapter 2. That's where we'll be at, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we had Colin read a portion of that. But as you guys are kind of turning there, I want, I want to tell a quick story. Of um, uh, It's a story I've heard a while ago, but I just thought, you know, it's so crazy, and it kind of fits in with what we're talking about Today, And so that is the story of a man named Dashroth Manji. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it the rest of the time we're here. And so Manji, he was a man who lived in India, and he lived in a very remote village. It was so remote, in fact, that to get to the next town over for where he lived, you would have to cross over or around a couple of mountains on some jagged, rocky paths, incredibly hard. It was upwards of 35 miles to hike just to get to the next town over. And this became a problem as there was no doctor in the village where uh, Dashroth Manji lived. And so when his wife had fallen, possibly on those rocky paths trying to get to the next town over to buy supplies or see a doctor or whatever it was, his wife had fallen and seriously injured herself. And because she wasn't able to make the hike to the next town over, she died because of the injuries she sustained. And because of this, this spurred Manji on to do just something that all of us would probably call impossible. He decided single-handedly he was going to hike up the mountain, armed with simple tools like crowbars and hammers and shovels, and he was going to dig a way through the mountain so that the people of his village could get the help and the supplies that they needed. So in 1960, Manji took those tools, he climbed the mountain, he was ridiculed for it, he was made fun of. I mean, he was doing the impossible, digging through a mountain. But what's crazy is that after 22 years of digging, Dashroth Manji succeeded in his task. He cut through the mountain and cut through that 35-mile hike so that it was just a handful of, of miles at that point. He took what would have been a, a several-days-long journey and made it a couple hours by doing what all of us would probably call impossible. But Dashroth Manji was determined to allow the people that he cared about, the people of his village, to get what they needed most. And he was going to do whatever it took to accomplish that. And so today in Mark chapter 2, we'll see a group of friends that do something maybe not as incredible as digging through a mountain, but something maybe just as crazy as they have a friend who is paralyzed, possibly from birth, who desperately needed to get healed by Christ. And they, I mean, they don't dig through a mountain, but they dig through a roof of somebody's home to get their friend to Christ. And so to give you an idea of what we're going to look like, I'm actually going to read our text in full here. We had Colin read the first part. I'm going to finish it out. We're just going to walk through it section by section, 
give some observations, some, some ideas, some concepts. And then at the end, I just have a few quick applications that we're going to run through. And so if you will, if you follow along with me, we're in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, in which it says, And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near the, uh, if they, and they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they laid down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? But God alone. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. And immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So right from the get-go, Mark sets up the scene of what's about to happen. Right from the, the onset, he kind of establishes the scene. So like if you're reading a story or reading a book, the, the first thing that happens in the storyline is you've got to set up the scene. You've got to establish what's going on and who the characters are and things like that. And Mark does that in this story. And it's kind of unique, this level of detail that Mark gives to this passage. Because Mark is by far the shortest gospel that was written out of the four. And this exact story is included in two others, Luke and Matthew. But Mark, for, for whatever reason, as he was writing this gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit, slows down and gives the most verses and the most detail on this paralytic man being healed by Christ. And so Mark slows down. He gives details more than Luke or Matthew. And he focuses couple of verses here on just the size of the crowd that was at the door. In verses 1 and 2, it says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And there is a great crowd gathered together so that there's no more room, not even at the door, right? So Jesus comes back to Capernaum. Capernaum is kind of like one of the bases that Jesus, is, uh, Jesus uses for his ministry. He kind of comes back and forth. He does a lot of his ministry out of this area. But here it says that he was returning home. And scholars kind of debate and try to figure out whose home that was that he was returning to. Because it's kind of implied and said in the, in, in the Gospels that Jesus didn't have a home himself. He wasn't on the, the lease of this building, but it was someone's home. Some people say it might have been Peter's, one of his disciples. It might have been Peter's mother-in-law or some other disciple. Somebody's home was being lent out to Jesus so that he could teach and preach the word to these people gathered in Capernaum. And I just want to say that's kind of significant. I'm sure whoever loaned their home out to Jesus to be used probably wasn't expecting quite this big of a crowd to show up 
And I'd certainly guess they weren't expecting a, a hole in their roof to be installed. But whatever it was, they opened up their home to Christ to be used. And instead of resting, instead of getting away from the crowds, instead of finding peace, Jesus gathers the people together in this home and he teaches the word to them. And the crowd was so big, so many people gathered to hear Jesus teach that there was no more room in the house. There was no more room, not even to stand in the doorway to see Christ. So I imagine the room full to the brim, people outside waiting to get in, leaning heads through windows just trying to get a glimpse of Christ as he taught. And me and, me and Lakin, we don't, we don't live in an especially large apartment. All right, we, we live in seminary housing. It's a modest, humble, and cozy two-bedroom apartment we have. But there is some folks, some friends of ours, that have thrown parties and gatherings in those modest, cozy two-bedroom apartments that were so big, you could, you couldn't even really walk around without rubbing shoulders with people. Like you had to kind of stand outside just to breathe because there's so many people crammed into these small apartments. And so I kind of can picture what was happening here with the, with the scene that Mark sets up. Just so many people in this home that you can't even fit in hearing the word of God being taught by the Son of God. And Mark finishes the scene setting by telling us that Jesus was preaching the word to this crowd. And, oh, I just want to think how amazing that would have been. Could you imagine hearing Jesus teach the word of God to you? The best preacher that had ever existed was, I mean, the Son of God himself. And he was here teaching. And I imagine just the crowd hanging on every word he said. As he taught, like what was said earlier, as one with authority as he taught the scriptures. And after establishing that, that this crowd is here. They're hearing the word proclaimed by Jesus. Mark introduces a couple more main characters to our story here. It's four friends that are carrying their fifth friend. And this fifth friend is a paralytic. We don't know the details of it. We don't know if he was paralyzed at some point by an accident or if he was born with that condition. We're not sure. But all we know is that four of these guys are carrying him bed and all, to go see Jesus. And Mark tells us, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And clearly these guys were something else. I mean, just to, to the, the, the act of carrying their friend to Christ is already up there with like, I need some friends like that, you know? Some faithful friends are who are going to do what it takes. But we're going to see as we keep going, they're way more than just carrying their friend to Christ, right? Because they encounter a serious hurdle to their plan. You know, I imagine they, they kind of planned it all together. They knew Jesus. They knew he was a popular guy. They knew a crowd was going to be getting there early. So I don't know, maybe one of them set an alarm clock a little bit early and they rallied the guys together and they're like, all right, we're leaving at this time. We're going to go down to Capernaum. We know the house he's going to be at. We're going to get there before anyone else gets there. And our, our, our buddies, he's going to be healed by Christ. It's going to be incredible. But then they get there. They're carrying this man. Who knows how long? It could have been miles that they carried their friend to come find Christ. And they get there and they just see this crowd. They see the doors blocked up. They see even the windows are covered by people surrounding this building. And I can't imagine how devastating that must have been for these friends. How heartbreaking, especially for their friend who was on the bed so desperately in need of healing. 
You know, it would be easy to assume this man probably had several years of struggling with his paralysis, if not a lifetime of it. He had countless attempts at healing, all for, for nothing. Obviously, he was still dealing with this problem. And now having full faith that Jesus could heal him and having full faith of his friends that Jesus could do this, they get together, they carry him up to this house where Jesus is at and are devastated to see that there's no way they're getting in. I mean, Mark tells us, he specifically says, there's not even room in the doorway. You can't, they're not going to carry this man to see Christ. But then the next part is, is especially incredible. That what these friends do and the faith that you can see is just incredible. Their determination, right? In, in verse four, he says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I kind of wish I could have been a, a fly on the wall during the conversation of these, these four guys, and the fifth one included, as they're figuring out what they're going to do. You know, I imagine like maybe they're hauling up a hill, and they get across the hill, and they see the massive crowd, and they're just devastated for a few minutes, and one of them's like, well, I guess we should probably turn back and go home. And another one was like, yeah, I mean, we'd have to go through the roof to get to Jesus at this point. And then from the back one goes, hey, I got an idea, okay? <laughs> but just to hear the thought process of these friends, because they had decided at some point, whether it was on the way up there when they saw the crowd, at some point they decided nothing was going to stop them from getting their friend to Christ. Even if they had to dig a hole through the roof, they were going to set their friend before the foot of Christ. They were going to take ridicule. They were going to take dirty looks. They were going to break social norms. They were going to do everything. But at the end of the day, their friend would sit at the foot of Jesus. And the reality is that these friends didn't care what people thought or they didn't care what the social norms were going on. All they knew is here was their friend who needed healing and there was the man who could heal him. And whatever it was going to cost, they were going to unite the two together. They were going to get them together. And so they climbed up on the roof. Had to be no easy task to carry a paralyzed man onto a roof. As then they dug a hole through the ceiling. At that point, roofs weren't quite like this. There were probably more wood or dirt or things like that. So they could have literally took a shovel and dug a hole through the roof to lay their hole. And they couldn't just dig a little hole. They had to dig a, a hole big enough that this man's bed could be lowered through. As they were pouring dirt on top of the heads of the people underneath them, pouring dirt on top of the heads of the scribes and even Jesus as they were digging. You know, it, it's just amazing what these friends were going to do to get their friend to Christ. And once the hole was big enough, as they finally dug a hole big enough to lay their friend through, they lowered him down at the foot of Jesus, and they knew they had succeeded at their task. They had done what they set out to do. And I think the faith and determination, we're just going to camp out on these a minute longer, then we've got to move on. But I think the faith and the determination that these friends had should be really encouraging or really convicting for the church today. You know, if you're a believer here, if you would say, I'm a follower of Christ, a Christian, if you will, I think we should have a similar level of determination. Now, it's a little bit different, 
obviously, when we're trying to get people to the foot of Christ, but we should have a similar determination to see our friends and our loved ones come to Christ that these friends had. Because I know so often we just don't have that kind of determination. You know, we're so quickly to back down at the awkwardness of a gospel conversation or the shakiness of breaking social norms of bringing up religion to people who who desperately need Christ. You know, I think the reality is if we truly believe what the Bible says, if we truly believe in what Christ says about himself, even in this passage in Mark chapter 2, if we truly take that to heart and believe what Christ is saying, we should have a similar determination of not letting anything stop us from getting the gospel to the people we love and the people that we cherish. And I think, um, really, we should ask ourselves two questions as the church, semi-regularly. I try to ask myself this every once in a while, but I think we should ask this as a church, kind of in reflecting on this. And that's the first question is, who am I sharing the gospel with? And the second question is, who am I discipling? And so I think we as a church should be asking ourselves, who is somebody who is far from God but close to me? that I could share the love of Christ with. We obviously cannot force them to make any decision or to follow Christ, but we can do everything in our power to give them everything, every tool they have to know who Christ is, to know who he says he is, and to know what he's done for us. Who is far from us, or who is far from God but close to us that we can share the gospel with? And number two is, who, is, who are we discipling, Christian? Who is a younger believer, someone who's not quite as far in their faith, that you can walk alongside with, live life with, and pour into to help them grow up in Christ? And if the answer to those two questions is no one, then I think we should change something, believer. We should do something different to where we are sharing the faith that we are so changed by. The faith that called us out of hell and into life. Share that faith and share that love with other believers who can grow closer. Parents, I think if I can talk to you just a minute, obviously I'm not a parent, but your main priority is clear in the scriptures to disciple and raise up your children in the way that they should go. As a parent, your first priority should be discipling your children. I know many of you personally, I know many of you are and doing that really well. But parents, raise up your children well. And grandparents, obviously the hope is that you raise your children well, and so they're raising their children well. But don't miss the opportunity you have to pour into your grandchildren and their families. I mean, I'll tell you, I stand here today a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, redeemed by his blood and his grace, because I had a grandmother who cared enough about my soul to tell me about the Jesus she loved. And so grandparents, don't miss the chance you have to share the love of Christ with your grandchildren, with your family, and to disciple them and bring them up. The friends in our text today, these four guys, they had that kind of determination. They had that kind of serious faith. And they were serious about seeing their friend come before the foot of Christ to see the healing that he needed. And as we go on, we're going to see this man had two needs, really. He needed to be healed of his paralysis, but there was even a greater 
need that he had, a greater need that we all share with him. In verse 5, as these friends get their buddy to Christ, they lower him from the ceiling after digging a hole, and finally they can breathe a sigh of relief as their friend is before Jesus, and Jesus is looking at their friend. And in verse 5, we get Jesus' first words to them. It says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus here addresses the man's greatest need. And it's interesting because in a way, he kind of subverts our expectations a little bit. Like a good twist in a movie, we expect, you know, like Jesus, this man to get lowered down before Jesus and for him to see him. And we expect Jesus to say something like, son, get up and walk or you're healed or something like that's what we expect to read. But instead, Jesus subverts those expectations, looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. This man had a serious problem physically. I don't want to downplay that at all. This man couldn't walk. And in those days, that means he couldn't work. He couldn't provide for himself or family if he had one. He had serious physical problems that he was seeking healing for. But even more than that, he had a serious soul problem in that he had sins like we all do. The scripture is clear that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sins. All of us are like this man in desperate need of healing. Because you see, life, life is hard sometimes. Our bodies, they hurt They break down, they cause us pain, they cause us trouble, they cause us problems, and sometimes very, very serious problems. But we need to reflect like this man and realize that our ultimate problem isn't a need to be healed physically, but a need to be healed first spiritually. Our main problem is a sin problem. Because sin is serious. Scripture is clear on the seriousness of sin. The thing that separates us from God, the root of all the problems on the earth, boil down to that three-letter word. But specifically, the biggest thing sin does is separates us from the life-giver God. And it isn't just a problem we have. It's not like like a cold, like I have some sin, but I'll get over it. It's okay. Scripture is clear that sin leads to death, not necessarily physical death. It That is a cause of sin, but more than that, it leads to an eternal death. And even now, even though we may be alive, we may be breath in our lungs here today, we could still be dead spiritually if we're still in that sin. Paul would tell us in Ephesians 2.1 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not a problem you have, it's the problem you have And in Romans 6.23, he would tell us that the wages of sin is death. That because of our sin, the punishment that we rightly deserve is that eternal death, that separation from God. Sin is serious. Sin kills. Sin separates us from God eternally. And sin is the greatest problem that this man had and the greatest problem that humanity has ever faced. And before Jesus heals this man physically of his ailments, he heals him spiritually of his spiritual death. Ooh. 
You see, physical ailments hurt. I don't want to downplay that. They are serious. We just had a death in our family a few months ago of someone who passed away because of cancer, and it's serious, and it hurts, and that's okay. But we need to recognize also that the physical ailments we experience in this life are temporary. They hurt, but they are temporary. But sin destroys, and the consequences of sin are eternal. And we need, like this man, to sit before the uh, foot of Christ and hear those glorious words, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I believe that those who have faith in Christ, those who trust in the sacrifice of Christ and say, that's enough to cleanse me, that is my only hope. Those who do that, who trust in Jesus Christ, I believe that he lovingly looks down from heaven and says the same thing he said to this man, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And I believe that that's the only way to be forgiven of our sins. You see, in Romans 6, 23, I started that verse. He tells us that the wages of sin is death. Sin is serious. The punishment, the payment for sin is death. But he finishes that verse by saying the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin brings death and destruction, Christ brings hope, restoration, and eternal Life, And so I urge you, if, if you say you've never really trusted in that before, I urge you to experience the forgiveness of sins. Experience the joy of being forgiven and to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be like this man and have the greatest need we could ever have addressed fully in our Lord Jesus Christ. And like this man, we too can be forgiven. But going to our text and looking at this, you'd think, you'd think this would be a cause of rejoicing. You know, this man is here. He has his sins forgiven. He can walk rightly before God again. you think this would like erupt the crowd into joyous praise of the Lord, saying, hallelujah, praise God who forgives sins. You'd think that would be what happened. But in, in, instead, as Jesus addresses this man's greatest need at his soul level, he catches the eye or rather the ear of a particular crowd that's there listening to him teaching. See, Mark, tell, Mark introduces now the scribes. And the scribes could be seen as part of the group that represent the religious elite. They would have been the ones who knew the Old Testament, possibly had it memorized to know exactly what the Old Testament taught. They would have been seen as the guys you could go to to have your religion questions answered, these scribes. And you would think, out of all the people who would have been rejoicing and praising the Messiah, you would think it would be those guys. But instead, look at how they respond in verse 7. After Jesus forgives this man of his sins, it says, I'm sorry, in verse 6, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so instead of rejoicing and praising the Lord for forgiving these, this man of his sins, they're questioning, saying, who, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus man who says your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. 
Only God can offer that forgiveness. Who is this guy? Right? And see, in a way, they were right. In a way, these scribes had something correct about what they were questioning. Because they were right in the sense that, yeah, only God can forgive sins. Only God is the one who has the authority to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Right? And what Jesus does next is makes just a remarkably bold declaration. And I want you guys to think, when, when Jesus finished what he's saying, remember the thought that only God can forgive sins. Only God can offer forgiveness. And so as these scribes are questioning in their hearts, which is important, they're questioning in their hearts, saying, who is this guy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark tells us um, in verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, So not even hearing them discussing anything, but perceiving in his spirit, he could read their hearts and know what they are questioning. He responds with a question of himself. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And so Jesus responds to their questioning with a question of him. Of himself. He responds with saying, Why are you questioning these things? What's easier to say to this man, this paralyzed man? What's easier to say to him? Your sins are forgiven? Or to tell him to get up, walk out of here? Which one is easier? And in a sense, it almost seems that the answer to Jesus' question would have been to say, I mean, saying your sins are forgiven is easier than saying, get up and walk. I mean, it would be wrong, but it's easier to say that because nobody is going to... If you say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk out of here, and he doesn't get up and walk out, everyone all of a sudden knows exactly that you don't know what you're doing, right? But if you say your sins are forgiven, there's some wiggle room. And I think perhaps Jesus is hinting at maybe even these scribes going to the temple would have told people that their sins might have been forgiven. But what Jesus is getting at is that Although it might be easier to say your sins are forgiven, in reality, it's so much harder to back that up. In fact, for a human, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to look at someone else and say, I forgive your sins. I offer you that forgiveness. And for a human, it's also impossible for us to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk. I've healed you of your ailment. So for man, both these questions are impossible. Both of these things are impossible for us to do. But for God, both of these things aren't just possible. Both these things are easy. Because God is the one who can heal, and God is the one who can forgive sins. And like I said, with, with these scribes, when they were questioning who can forgive sins but God alone, they were right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But what Jesus is claiming here in this text is that he's not just some healer. He's not just someone who knows the word of God really well and can teach it really well. He's not just somebody. He's not a scribe. He's not a Pharisee. He's more than that. What Jesus is claiming here is that he is God and he carries all of the authority that God carries. The authority to forgive sins, the authority to right wrong people, And ultimately, the authority to heal 
as well. Jesus makes the bold declaration that he is God and that he carries the authority of God, his Father. And Jesus doesn't just say this. He doesn't just say to these scribes and Pharisees, I can forgive sins because I'm God and that's just how it ends. He proves it to everyone here. He says to these scribes, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk out of here, but that you may know, and this is in verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looked at the paralytic and said, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. He said, I have the authority to forgive sins, and I'm going to prove it by showing I have the authority to heal this man. Everyone had to be tense in this scene. I like to picture, when I, when I read, I like to picture it in my mind, you know, kind of watching like a movie in my mind of what's playing out. And then in this right here, I think you get some really good tension that's built by Mark as he's, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit writing this text. I believe that the scribes were, were incredibly tense, having just been called out by this teacher, having Jesus directly oppose them, directly call them out in front of this great crowd. They had to be tense. I believe that the, the crowd was probably really tense too. I mean, they're sitting in the background. They were watching this whole thing go down, this whole kind of battle of wits between Jesus and these scribes. They had to be on the edge of their seat, tense, waiting to see what would happen. This paralyzed man, he had to be tense. After fighting so hard to get before the foot of Jesus, seeing the man who he believed could heal him, having been forgiven of his sins, and now being told to get up, the tension had to be real. And the person who owned this home had to be incredibly tense because there's still a hole in their roof that hasn't been fixed yet. Like Tension all around. The only person I think who wasn't tense during this whole thing was Jesus. He knew. He knew the minute this crowd was gathering, he knew what was about to happen. And he knew what's, a, what's going to happen in a few seconds here. He knew, and he was probably the most relaxed person in the whole room as he was about to, he knew what was about to be proven to these people. And so Jesus looked at this man He said, so you all know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to this man, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And look at the beauty of verse 12 when it says, And he rose. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. The man who was paralyzed possibly for his whole life gets up. And although the bed, the bed was carried in by four guys with one man laying on it, it walks out carried by one man, the man who was laying on it, who had to be carried in there. He rose. He was healed. The paralyzed man got up and he went home and Jesus boldly declared and proved to the crowd around him that he had the authority to forgive sins, that he was God, that he was this promised Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for, for generations, for hundreds of years. He had proven this, that he had the authority. 
to forgive sins. And he had proven that with the immediate healing of this paralyzed man. And as the verse, or this uh, story ends in verse 12, Mark tells us that as this paralyzed man gets up and walks out in full view of everyone there, that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. The crowd was amazed at what they had just seen. But the sad truth is, is that this amazement didn't last. They say, I'm amazed. I've never seen anything quite like this. But it doesn't last. If you were to read the rest of the Gospel of Mark or read any of the Gospel stories, you'd know that Jesus doesn't finish his life as a king. He doesn't finish his earthly life, I suppose you should say. As a king with a crowd gathered before him, he doesn't end as a popular man with audiences waiting to hear his every word. He doesn't end as someone with this amazed crowd that follows him around. No, instead, he dies alone, having been beaten and mocked and hung to a cross. The crowd leaves him. Even his disciples deny him at certain points. And Christ dies alone. And although the crowd would leave him, he remained nailed to that cross, and he died for that crowd, and he died for us. He died the death that we all deserve to pay for our sins so that he can look on us and say, your sins are forgiven. He can say to us, walk in the forgiveness and light. Paul told us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus, through his death, paid those wages for us. He died so that he could look at those who trust in him and say like he did to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiveness and forgiven. And we could walk in that forgiveness because he died for us. And as our time kind of wraps up here, as we've walked through and we've seen the faith of these incredible friends getting their buddy to Christ, and we see Jesus pushing against these scribes and these people and saying, I am God and I have the authority to heal, and seeing this man having been carried to Christ, walking out on his own power. As we conclude, I, just, I would like us to reflect a little bit. And I think Mark wrote this story in a way that we could easily find ourselves in this text here. And so I, I want to ask two groups. It's essentially if you would say you're a follower of Christ, you have put your full trust in Jesus. Rejoice in that forgiveness. Praise the Lord. But then I want you to reflect and ask, are you like these, the friends in this text? Are you faithful and passionate and determined to see those around you come before the foot of Christ? To come before the foot of the cross? To have their sins forgiven? Are you determined to see that happen? Or are we more like the crowd that was gathered around Jesus? That you hear the word, you read the word, you reflect on Jesus, and you say, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen anything like that. But then nothing happens afterward. 
You know, we praise him and we reflect on Sundays and Wednesdays, but the rest of the week we're just grinding at our jobs or trying to stay above the water or just not really pursuing him like we should. I pray that as as believers, we have the faith like these friends, that we are relentless in our pursuit of the gospel and relentless in seeing people come to Christ and that we're not like the crowd that was amazed and left. And for the non-believer here today, you say you don't really know Jesus. Maybe you've never even stepped foot in a church before. Or maybe you say, I've read about this Jesus and I want nothing to do with him. Either way, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming on this fine Sunday morning. But I also really want you to know that Jesus said he was God. And I fully believe what he said was the truth. And Jesus said that he is the only way to forgiveness. He was clear about that. And he was clear that all of us have a sin problem. And so if you say you've never really put your trust in Christ, if you say you push against that, I urge you and I beg you, come to Christ even today and know and walk away in the forgiveness of sins and know that joy and that peace that comes with it. Because like The other two characters in our story, you can see what Jesus says. You can read the scriptures. And in the face of the miracles he performed and the preaching he's done and the resurrection, in the face of all that, you can be like the scribes and you can say, I want nothing to do with that. That is not what I'm going to trust in. And you could deny Christ like these scribes and walk away unforgiven. Or, and I beg you to be like the man who was paralyzed, who came before the foot of the foot of Christ, having faith that Jesus was the one who could heal him, I urge you have faith that Jesus is the one that could heal your soul, and walk away and be forgiven. I urge you to leave here forgiven, and experience true healing. And to close, the, I'd like to read a passage from Second Corinthians chapter five. This is a letter that Paul wrote, and I truly feel when I read 2 Corinthians 5, this is both what I think one of the greatest calls to be reconciled to Christ, but also one of the greatest calls for those who are saved to go with their ministry of reconciliation to other people. That we don't just do this because it's a good thing or we want to be like a super Christian. We do this because Christ has entrusted the gospel to us to bring it to the nations, to bring it to those who don't know. And so as we close, I'm just going to read First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I apologize, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And it says, and listen to these words, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and all of this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for your word and for who you are, Lord. I thank you that Jesus wasn't just a man who could heal. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't some guru that was offering wisdom. Instead, he was your son. And he carried all the authority that you carry, Lord. And I thank you. I thank you that he can look down on sinful men like me and say, your sins are forgiven. Not because of anything I or we could do, Lord, but because of what you did through the cross, through your death, through your resurrection. Lord God, as Paul said, you were reconciling humanity to yourself. And I thank you for that. Thank you for reconciling people to you, God. And I pray that you spur us on as believers, as those who have faith in you, to go out with the ministry of reconciliation and to see others bask in the forgiveness of sins, God. Thank you. Thank you for who you are, and thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.